The History Channel original podcast. Booth planned not only to murder Lincoln, but to murder Vice President Andrew Johnson, Secretary of State Seward, and General Ulysses S. Grant. He planned to decapitate the entire United States government if he could do it. Only days after coming back from Appomattox and being this great victorious general, now Grant is tasked with planning the funeral of a man who had been not only his president, but also had become a dear friend. After the war, the South is devastated. What was all of their wealth has largely been wiped out. Lincoln gets killed now. Who is gonna be the one man who can provide that stable guiding hand on the nation? From the History Channel, this is Making Grant. I'm Andre DeShields. The Civil War, a long and bloody national crisis, has finally come to an end. And almost immediately, President Lincoln, the man who had made agonizing decisions to preserve the Union and sacrifice so many American lives to that cause, is assassinated. Grant now finds himself faced with a new challenge, to implement an uneasy peace in a manner that can truly reunite the nation. Historian Barton A. Myers explains. In 1865, Grant's duties, his responsibilities as general of the armies, was to run the largest civil project ever the federal government had taken on, known as Reconstruction. Reconstruction fundamentally was military occupation. And it was organized around five military districts within the American South. But I don't think anyone recognized the true magnitude of what Reconstruction was going to look like. Reconstruction meant the reintroduction of the Confederate States back into the American Union, which sounds pretty simple. But you've got to have some way of reintegrating the Southern economy with the rest of the national economy. Then you have to think about what you're going to do with the freed slaves. The 13th Amendment abolishes slavery, but what does it do beyond that? As historian Alan Gelzo points out, what is required is a complete reworking of the economic and legal systems of the nation's southern states. Reconstruction has three aims. Jamestown Yorktown Foundation Executive Director Christy Coleman explains. It was to rebuild infrastructure in the South. It was to help transition newly freed people and what freedom could look like for them, most of whom are completely illiterate, who have no property, who have no prospects, but who have desire. And it was to restructure legal systems to help protect newly freed people and to address this idea of equality for everyone. Not surprisingly, Many people in the former Confederate states are not enthusiastic about the changes to come. Here is University of Virginia historian Caroline E. Janney. The success of the Union Army doesn't mean a return to status quo. It means the Union restored without slavery. And so the most egregious part of Union victory for former Confederates is emancipation. 
And so they pushed back on it from the very beginning. They pushed back in legal ways. The Black Codes are a series of laws first passed in Mississippi, South Carolina, and Georgia in 1865, almost immediately following the end of the war. They are an attempt by these southern states to preserve white supremacy post-emancipation. These laws regulate employment for black Americans. They restrict voting, the renting or purchase of land, even where black people can congregate. One Mississippi law allowed the state to take custody of children whose parents could not support them. These children would then be apprenticed to their former owners. And throughout the late 1860s, conflicts would regularly erupt between former Confederate soldiers and free African Americans across the South. You see this conflict in New Orleans in 1866. African Americans and a handful of white Republicans are trying to write a new constitution for the state that would recognize African American voting and civil rights. What happens is a local newspaper whips up a frenzy. Ex-Confederates gather, trying to stop them. It was an absolute powder kick. The ex-Confederates, aided by local police, storm the New Orleans Convention, killing delegates as they flee. Some delegates jump from windows to escape. In the end, 38 are killed and 146 wounded. So in 1866, Grant receives reports from his commanders throughout the South. And it becomes quite evident that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of so-called outrages of African Americans being killed in, in horrific, barbarous ways. As a general of the United States Army, Grant is charged with and, indeed, sorely wants to keep the peace. But he no longer has the ally he had in Lincoln. Former Vice President Andrew Johnson, now leading the nation in the wake of Lincoln's assassination, takes a hands-off position toward conflict in the South. Marsha Chatlin is Associate Professor of History at Georgetown University. Andrew Johnson is able to emerge as a figure who is a friend of the Confederacy, who will not implement Reconstruction with the great force of the federal government. Grant is increasingly frustrated and furious that Johnson is trying to impede any sort of military intervention in the South. Grant wants to take action to support the new peace. In his mind, that means sending in troops. And when Johnson's term ends in 1869, Grant sees his opportunity to settle things his way. I think we underestimate how politically savvy Grant was. Grant is an interesting man as a political figure. He doesn't seek out the nomination for the presidency ever, but he doesn't turn down the nomination for the presidency either. In 1868, Grant receives a unanimous nomination from the Republican Party. And not unlike Washington, that Washington was the father of the country and Grant was the savior of the country is something that is on many people's minds. At that time, it was considered unseemly for a candidate to openly campaign for president. So Grant doesn't campaign, and he doesn't have to. Grant wins the 1868 election in an electoral college landslide, but 
His presidency would be the presidency that had the responsibility of securing political rights for African Americans. He had an enormous responsibility and an incredibly difficult one, not once, but twice, winning the war and then winning the peace. In his inauguration speech, Grant tells the bruised nation, the country, having just emerged from a great rebellion, many questions will come before it for settlement in the next four years. In meeting these, it is desirable that they should be approached calmly, without prejudice, hate, or sectional pride. I ask patient forbearance, one toward another, throughout the land, and a determined effort on the part of every citizen to do his share towards cementing a happy union. When Ulysses Grant is inaugurated as president, he has what amounts to a colossal mess on his hands. He has not only reconstruction, but he has a botched attempt at beginning reconstruction under Andrew Johnson that he has to overcome. And that's going to create a formidable agenda for him to deal with as president. Grant says, I feel responsibility of the position, but accept them without fear. The office has come to me unsought. I commence its duties untrammeled. I bring to it a desire and determination to fill it to the best of my ability. Grant must satisfy those in the South who feel he has not done enough to protect their newly established rights, and those in the North who want no further military action. When Grant becomes president of the United States, he is absolutely committed to the aims of Reconstruction. He is committed to making America fully just, fully equal for Black people and white people. He is committed to this in his own simple and elegant way. On February 26, 1869, Grant ushers the 15th Amendment through Congress, establishing the right to vote for Black men across America. So now we have 3.5 million people from Mississippi to Louisiana to South Carolina voting themselves and the candidates of their choosing. Biographer Joan Waugh says, the face of Washington changes for the first time in American history. African Americans in most Southern states were elected for the first time to Washington, D.C. as senators and as congressmen, but on a state level as well. And all these things, this incredible biracial experiment was happening. And the changes that they make are extraordinary. They establish free public education for every child. They establish systems that make it easier for people to vote and to be able to acquire land. It's a period of possibility in American history. It was not just a political project, it was also a social project. You see the building of schools, the building of banks. You see more people are learning to read among African-American communities than ever before. Author Ta-Nehisi Coates says, the changes to life in the South in this era of Reconstruction are truly radical. You probably have more political progress for Black people than you actually had in the North. You know, not just because there were more Black people, but because of what was happening was so revolutionary. There is a profoundly progressive agenda moving the arc 
towards justice for everybody. And then it falls apart. As the Civil War ends, it seems as though the South is making great strides toward equality. For the first time, Black Americans in Southern states begin to gain representation, both locally and in Washington. During Reconstruction, 16 Black congressmen are elected, and several hundred Black politicians win state and local seats. But then a force emerges which, through backroom politics and vigilante terrorism, seeks to return the South to the set of rules that defined a slave-owning society. Historian Alan C. Gelzo explains. The Ku Klux Klan very quickly grows to become a paramilitary insurgency in which armed Confederate veterans will turn to violent tactics. In many counties throughout the South, The Ku Klux Klan controls the levers of political power. Thousands of black men are killed for registering to vote. And in places where that happens, black voting drops off to near zero. Abolitionist and statesman Frederick Douglass visits Washington to implore Grant to do more to defend freedom in the South. Thus far, Grant has struggled to enact his plan for military intervention, owing to political pressures in both the North, among those who favor freedom for black people but not true equality, and the South, from ex-Confederates who favor neither. Frederick Douglass, he understands Grant's huge popularity among the people, and he wants to help Grant be that next great American leader in the vein of a George Washington. Grant urgently wants to do more. He writes to the Speaker of the House, There is a deplorable state of affairs existing in some portion of the South demanding the immediate attention of Congress. He feels so strongly about the Klan Act that he marches to Capitol Hill with his entire cabinet to lobby for it. But the question is, what exactly can he do about the activities of the Klan? Because this is, after all, state matter. What Congress does is to equip Grant with the Ku Klux Klan Act. It allows Grant to declare martial law and send federal troops in directly to intervene. And so in 1871, several companies of the 7th Cavalry are sent into South Carolina, where under Major Lewis Merrill, they actually go out and begin arresting large numbers of Klan members to bring them to justice. With the passage of the Klan Act, Grant is free to send the military into the South without facing criticism from the many Northerners who hold an isolationist view toward Southern conflicts. It took a lot of counterintelligence operations of getting to know who the political leaders were, getting to know who the Klan leaders were. A difficult thing to do, but ultimately, Grant is going to be successful at defeating the Klan. For all practical purposes, by 1872, the operations of the Ku Klux Klan have been pretty successfully suppressed. And it is one of the significant achievements of Grant's administration. Ta-Nehisi Coates says it's an accomplishment that today is mostly forgotten. 
I think fighting and defeating the Klan is a big deal. And so that Grant defeats the first wave of the Klan is, I think, something that people have not paid enough attention to. The 1871 Klan Acts made it safe enough for African-Americans to vote in the South. But there was pushback, and there was pushback in large part because many people believed that Grant was overextending his hand. Many white Northerners, including a fair number of Union soldiers, are never on board with occupying the South. They say, if this can happen in the South, why can't it happen in the North? And the country is also aware of the great cost of this military occupation, the great cost of, of Reconstruction. And quite frankly, they've grown weary of Reconstruction. Grant is well aware that public opinion goes strongly against the use of federal troops just being sent in whenever there's some kind of emergency and martial law being declared. In other words, he could wreck the entire Reconstruction project if he reaches for the martial law weapon too much. Grant finds that his military instincts don't always easily translate to politics. I thought I could run the government of the United States as I did the staff of my army. It was my mistake, and it led me into other mistakes. During the Civil War, the economy of the North grew rapidly. The dawn of American big business began. This coincides with an enormous expansion of the federal government, and with it, more opportunity for corruption than ever before. Grant himself was not corrupt. Ironically, his presidential administration goes down as one that is remembered as being corrupt. Grant has a blind loyalty to people, and some of the people that he appointed were corrupt. Grant is an honest man, and he assumes others are like him. He generally lacks suspicion. Instead of relying on reputation or recommendation, he appoints friends from across the Republican Party and doesn't mind accepting favors. As he did as a general, he trusts his own experience and his own judgment of people. Grant Cottage Ranger Ben Kemp. You see that fierce loyalty with his secretary, Orville Babcock, Babcock was involved with the whiskey ring, which was government officials working with whiskey distributors and dealers to embezzle money to the tune of one and a half million dollars a year. And it was a major, major scandal, but Grant's loyalty was so strong, he vouched for Babcock. Corruption increasingly becomes a problem as bribes become more evident. And so there is a cultural shift that's going on Voters turn against Grant in the midterm elections of 1874. For the first time since the Civil War, a Democratic majority wins the House, and Grant finds himself unable to move forward with his plans for further reconstruction. The notion that his administration is full of corruption leads people to doubt and to pull back from supporting him, especially when it comes to reconstruction. But Grant remained popular, and he certainly remained popular with Union veterans. In September 1875, Grant gets an appeal from Governor Adelbert Ames of Mississippi, and Ames says that there is already so much violence ahead of the November elections, and so he asked Grant to send down federal troops. There's a real pushback 
to any more intervention in the South. Many white Northerners say enough is enough. There's a notion that corruption abounds in the federal government and there's no longer a real willingness of white Northerners to say more needs to be done for African-Americans. So now Grant has to weigh what intervention in the South will mean at the polls in Northern states for Republicans. Do you sacrifice the Republican Party, the only party that's supporting and defending African-American voting rights, or do you capitulate to this terrorism on the ground in the South? Grant is confronted with a choice between doing what he feels is right and keeping political power. Grant decides not to send in troops, and he knows he's making the wrong choice. I believed at the time that I was making a grave mistake. But at present, it was duty on one side and party obligation on the other. Between the two, I hesitated, but finally yielded to what was believed to be party obligation. If a mistake was made, it was one of the head and not of the heart. And so Grant retires. Exhausted by politics, he writes, Personally, I was weary of office. I never wanted to get out of a place as much as I did the presidency. And without a champion in the White House, reconstruction fades. And so, after Grant leaves office, reconstruction is effectively over. Grant is not the one who abandoned Reconstruction. The American people abandoned Reconstruction, and he just couldn't rally them back in because of the swirl of things around it. And the abandonment was also an abandonment of the ideals behind it, which was really equality for everyone. And when that was abandoned, the remnants of this white supremacy was able to reemerge the subjugation of black people was allowed to reassert itself unchecked. It will take another hundred years of people pushing against status quo before we can even get to a point where we get Congress to actually enforce the amendments of Reconstruction. He was probably the most respected man and maybe the only who could have led at those times. And look what he does. He starts the Justice Department. He battles the Ku Klux Klan. He passes the 15th Amendment. Under his watch, the nation advances, and he does not just one, but two terms. And yet, ultimately, I don't really think he was a political animal in any sense. Grant felt, especially in his second term, he felt that he was in jail every single day. In fact, he used that in a letter, breaking out of jail. He couldn't wait to leave, and he planned to travel. He loved to travel. He loved to be on the move. And he and Julia spent two years traveling around the world. He went to India, he went to China, he went to Japan. And in every country where he goes, Grant is greeted by crowds in the hundreds of thousands. After Abraham Lincoln, Ulysses S. Grant is the most famous American in the world. When Grant returns to the United States after his two-year world tour, he is looking for an income. Presidents had no pension at the time. And his son, Ulysses Jr., had gotten involved in Wall Street. So Grant and his son started a partnership for a firm with a man named Ferdinand Ward, an up-and-coming 
phenom in the Wall Street market. The principal members are given allowances of $3,000 a month, and there's just money rolling in. But Ferdinand Ward turns out to be the Bernie Madoff of his day. He absconds with the entire Grant family fortune. They are wiped out. In 1884, Ulysses S. Grant, Civil War general and two-term president of the United States, was now faced with poverty. And Sam Clemens, better known as Mark Twain, arrived at his home to see if he could help Grant by having him write his memoirs and leave a lasting legacy of how he saw the war and how he saw one of the most pivotal moments in American history. Twain convinces Grant to write his memoirs and use the profits from the book's publication to save his family. But during the summer before he started writing, he bites into a peach and he says that somehow something stung him from the peach in his throat. He can't figure out what it is. He sees a doctor and at that point they realize that it's cancer and that they can't operate. So he realizes that it's fatal. Grant writes the two-volume memoir in almost constant agony. When he drinks a glass of water, he describes it as drinking molten lead. He wills himself to stay alive until the very end, completing the manuscript on July 20th, 1885. He dies just three days later. And it's the final battle of his life, the battle to outrace his terminal cancer in order to finish his memoirs and rescue his family from bankruptcy. But as everything else in his life, he did not let it defeat him. In the end, he would prevail and he would finish the book. Twain realizes at once that what Grant has written is a monument in American literature. Mark Twain later writes, I'd been comparing Grant's chapters with Caesar's commentaries and was able to say, in all sincerity, that the same high merits distinguished both books. Clarity of statement, directness, simplicity, manifest truthfulness, fairness and justice toward friend and foe alike. I placed the two books side by side upon the same level, and I still think that they belong there. I learned afterwards that General Grant was pleased with his verdict. It shows that he was just a man, just a human being, just an author. Immediately following Grant's death, Twain sends 10,000 salesmen across the country to sell Grant's memoirs, armed with a script he had written himself. Many are Civil War veterans dressed in their old uniforms. The book is an instant success. Elizabeth D. Samet, editor of the annotated memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant. This memoir is hugely important and hugely powerful. It earns over half a million dollars uh, for Julia, which, of course, in today's money would be much more. It's very successful, and people read it everywhere. I think something people tend to forget now is that Grant, at his death, was arguably the most famous American in the world. The response to his death was amazing. The national funeral, which took place in New York City, that day began with bells ringing all over the country, north and south. It was just a national outpouring of grief for him. 
In 1900, Theodore Roosevelt suggested that Grant, Lincoln, and Washington loomed as the three great heroes of American history. So even as late as the turn of the century, he's part of this heroic firmament. And then in the decades that follow, that diminishes rapidly. The tide turns against Grant as the South begins to spin its own revisionist history. What happened was that the history of the war came to be written by a lot of pro-Southern historians who exercise a powerful sway. It's often called the Lost Cause. The Lost Cause narrative is really an effort of the South to say, how did we sacrifice so much for a cause so bad as slavery? So they changed the narrative. No, no, it was about states' rights and independence. And so that narrative has become the predominant narrative. And I think a part of it gets buried in there is the role of Grant. Grant's legacy comes under attack. In part, thanks to this revisionist narrative of the lost cause, he's now widely thought of as the butcher, as the drunk, as corrupt. Everything else gets stripped away, and you've got the guy that won the Civil War, and he was an alcoholic and a failed president. And the lost cause casts Grant as the villain and Lee as the hero. So once the memory of that generation that venerated him passed on, he was forgotten. And so Confederates lost the Civil War, but they certainly won the War of Myth, and Grant was on the wrong side of that myth. But to many, even many in the South, Grant remains a hero. Here is former Confederate soldier A.M. Arnold writing on the eve of Grant's death. I hope you will allow one who, when but a boy, laid down his arms at Appomattox and gave in his allegiance to the Union to express his warmest sympathy for you in this your hour of affliction. Dear General, I have watched your movements from the hour you gave me my horse and sword and told me to go home and assist in making a crop. I have been proud to see the nation do you honor. And be assured that I am not the only ex-Confederate who sends his prayers daily for the restoration of the grandest, the noblest, the bravest soldier, and the purest statesman who ever graced the annals of history. There's something like really beautiful and American in his whole story. He just comes from nothing. From a hard scrabble background, who's had a lot of hard times and failures in his life, who rises to the highest level of power, he becomes the greatest general of his time. Against all odds, against incredible obstacles, he became the winning general of the Civil War. He was the commander of the victorious army that led to the emancipation of four million people. Grant is the unheroic hero of our greatest national epic, the Civil War and Reconstruction. He was committed to making America fully just, fully equal. Grant was the first civil rights president. It's as improbable a rise as any other figure in American history. Indomitable will, dogged determination. Moral vision. It's truly an American story of not only patriotism to the nation, but for the values, who we are and who we aspire to be. In Grant's words, one of my superstitions has always been, 
when I started to go anywhere or to do anything, never to turn back or stop until the thing intended was accomplished. Making Grant is a podcast from the History Channel, produced by Best Case Studios. For the History Channel, Jesse Katz, Mary Donahue, and Jennifer Wagman are the executive producers. McKamey Lynn, supervising producer. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. Suzanne Myers is our producer. Ashley Warren is the associate producer. Daniel Tarek edited and mixed this episode with assistance from Max Michael Miller. Grant was originally produced for television by Radical Media for the History Channel.